0: This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs When move through these tears of yesterday. From climbing mountains that are still Somehow Darkness, even now it brightly shines like a promise through the ages, my Redeemer. Is-
1: My hope within the grave Each regret and fear that gripped my heart
2: If you would please um, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, and we're going to just kind of camp out here for uh, all of our time, and uh, you can follow along. And uh, today on this cloudy, it it started out uh, kind of clear, but now cloudy and cold, Easter morning, I want to take a, a bit of a roundabout approach to the cross. And, and, and I want you to follow closely, and you'll need to, to be able to kind of stay in touch here. But we're going to look at Christ's final conversation on the cross and, and discuss a matter that increasingly has brought about much confusion in our society. And that's the matter, listen carefully, of confusing life with God. Now, I know that statement doesn't sound like a topic for Easter, and and that statement probably doesn't even make a lot of sense yet, but, but hang with me, and I think that by the time the closing buzzer sounds, it will make sense, and you will see that this topic does indeed relate to Easter. Let me begin by giving some context and just kind of laying the foundation. In our society, we have come to believe that when life is good, then God is good. So, for example, we get a raise, and what do we say? We say, God is good. Or if we're one of the few people that has actually avoided the nasty flu in our community, uh, what do we say? God is so good. You know, He's kept me healthy. Everybody else has been sick at work, but I've I've been healthy. God is so good. Or one week ago, and, and this is a true story, One week ago, my wife was involved in a car accident in Indiana. She was on I-70 in a snowstorm. And what happened, she was in the left-hand lane. There was a tractor-trailer truck in the right-hand lane. There was an entrance ramp. A car was coming down, ready to merge onto the interstate. And and I guess the the, uh, semi must not have seen my wife, her car. And uh, so he came over into her lane. To avoid being run over by the semi, my wife swerved over onto the shoulder, and and as I said, it was snowy, and and so the shoulder hadn't been plowed, and immediately when she hit that snow, she lost control, her car began spinning around, and and that was at an area where there were cables, you sometimes see cables along the interstate, and so her car hit those cables and and pretty much just cut off the front of her car, and... uh, but despite that, she walked away with no significant injuries, a little bit banged up, and my wife is tough as an old boot, and so she came out okay and, uh, emotionally shaken, but okay. Now, now what do you think my reaction was? My reaction obviously was, God, you are so good. Thank you, God. You, you, you spared her from serious injury. God is so good. But here's my question for you. What if my wife would have been seriously injured? And I don't even like to think about this, but what if she would have lost her life in that accident? Would God still be good? Here's what I found. As long as life is good, we're quick to say God is good. But when life is not so good, when we lose our job or or, or when our water heater springs a leak and floods the house or the transmission goes out in our car and all that kind of stuff that happens way too frequently in life, during those times, it seems that we never make the statement, God is good. In fact, during those tough times, we begin questioning the goodness of God. And we we say, why why would God allow that? I mean, that's not fair. I mean, I'm his own. And and why doesn't he take better care of me, his own? That doesn't seem fair. Or, or, Or should it go beyond tough times and turn into tragedy? A relative comes down with cancer. A child is taken from us. Not only do we sometimes question the goodness of God, but we begin to question the existence of God. Is there even a God? So it's very easy for us to take disappointment with life and turn it into disappointment with God. Now, as we move into our lesson, Luke 23, it appears that that was the case with the man that we're going to study. Now, we don't know this man's name, we don't know how old he was. We don't know his background. One thing we do know was that this man finds himself in a Roman jail cell, which, by the way, was probably nothing more than just a hole in the ground. You know, I don't know for sure, but I'm quite, I, I, I'm pretty sure that his, his jail cell did not have a flat screen TV. I'm sure that the facility had no gym where he could work out. It had no cafeteria where he could get three balanced meals per day. It had no comfortable mattress, no bathroom with a warm shower. The jail cell literally was a hole in the ground. And the guy that was in this jail cell was on death row. He had had such a violent past, and, and his behavior had been so volatile and so dangerous that he couldn't even be trusted to serve as a slave. In those days, the criminals, many times they were just incorporated into the slave force. But this man was so violent, he couldn't be trusted as a slave. He was the worst of the worst. His value, only value in life, was to illustrate the fact that you can't mess with Rome and get by with it. So therefore, Rome was getting ready to execute this man by crucifixion as a warning to anyone else that might try to defy the powerful Roman Empire. Now, this unnamed man in the Bible had undoubtedly seen plenty of crucifixions before. No doubt, he had witnessed the excruciating pain caused by crucifixion. He knew exactly what he was in for. And he knew that he would probably be like the rest of them. He would fight. He would struggle. He would scream. He would curse. But in the end... Victims of crucifixion always lost. Death always won. And then this man knew that after he had taken his last breath and and his body had quit struggling, his lifeless form would be peeled down from the cross and, and would be put on a wagon, taken to the south side of Jerusalem, down in the valley of Gehenna, and he would be placed on the city dump to be burned. Because as a violent criminal, there would be no mourners. His friends would not come. His family would not even come to give him a proper burial. He would be burned on the city dump. But yet, knowing all of that, that didn't change this man one bit. He had lived his life with defiance, and he had already pre-decided that he would die with defiance. Well, on the morning that they dragged him out of that crude jail cell... And marched him towards the place of execution. He discovered to his surprise. He was not the only one scheduled to be executed. Crucified that day. There were two other men. That would die alongside of him. They say that misery loves company. And, and so that day he would indeed have some company on the last day of his life. Now we don't know for sure. But, but very possibly this man knew one of the other criminals that would die alongside of him. But who was the other man? He didn't have the typical look of a hardened criminal. He found out that that this other man was a a, a rabbi, a a Jewish rabbi. His name was Jesus. He was from the Nazareth area. And this rabbi had, had attracted quite the crowd. And so if there were a silver lining in the cloud that day for this unnamed criminal, it would be that the large crowd would get to hear him make one final verbal attack, verbal barrage against the Roman regime. So that's our background. Let's allow Luke to walk us through our study together. And, and by the way, this will not be the typical hip, hip, hooray, resurrection pep rally that we might normally have on Easter Sunday. But I want to focus on a very important conversation that Jesus had on the cross that changed someone's eternal destiny. And it could possibly change yours as well. Luke says it this way. Luke twenty three thirty two, two other men. Both criminals were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, and if you've ever wondered why it's called the Skull, those that have you been to, have been to Israel, and those that are going with us here in what four or five months, that there is a place where they believe this took place, and there in the mountainside, uh, it looks like a skull. You see the hollowed out eyes and and a place for the nose, and and so they believe that. That's why that was called the skull place called the skull there. They crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Now, when you read certain certain verses in the Bible, it seems like there's just kind of a natural pause. You want to just stop and, and kind of chew on it and, and and meditate on it. But not on these two verses. You, you read these two verses that we just read and and you typically want to plow right on through the verse thirty four. But but today I want to force a pause into the action. I want us to stop. And I want to make sure that we understand that that death by crucifixion was not a quick and painless execution. And don't worry, I've already had somebody email about this and ask me not to give the bloody and the gory and the physiological details of being crucified. So I'm not going to do that. But suffice it to say that, that a crucifixion involved much pain much noise there was screaming there was cursing it it involved much terror because you you couldn't get your breath and so there was that fear that terror and, and it involved much agony and it took hours and hours and hours to die in some cases even up to three days depending on the way that they were crucified you know the romans did not always crucify people in the same manner they were very creative very innovative uh, so, sometimes they would crucify them and, and tie ropes around their wrists and, and around their ankles. Sometimes they would drive spikes in there. Sometimes they would use both spikes and ropes. So, so they were very innovative. And, and even though the Romans had not invented crucifixion yet, they had perfected it. And they were very creative when it came to ways to cause suffering. Now, Scripture tells us that that these two criminals that hung on either side of Jesus, they were cursing the Romans as well as yelling profanities at the onlookers who had come to watch the spectacle. But all of a sudden, in the midst of the screaming, in the midst of the cursing, in the midst of the commotion of this very, very tumultuous moment, the, the two criminals on either side of Jesus heard something very strange they heard this Jewish rabbi who had been silent except for just a few statements here and there. But he utters a word that was very rarely uttered from a Roman cross. They heard him say the word Father. Now, I, I was studying this and, 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 uh, Some some scholars pointed out that that there's just something about being close to death that that causes dying men to remember and call for their mom. But but, but it's interesting, they pointed out that that dying men rarely ever call for their fathers. In in, in their dying moments, it's mom, mother. So, So hearing the word father in itself no doubt got their attention. But then the next word that they heard him say was something that was even more startling. It was almost certain that it had never, ever, ever been uttered from a cross. And Luke tells us what that word was. Father, forgive. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Instead of the typical cursing and screaming and railing against the Romans, here was this man that, yes, he was in great agony, but there was something that even in his pain, he was so peaceful and serene. And he said, Father, forgive them. Yes, they crucified me. Yes, I'm in great agony. But, Father, those who carried this out didn't understand the weight of this, and and they didn't understand what they were doing, and so would you please forgive them? Luke continues detailing the account in verse 34, says, And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And so while Jesus is on the cross praying, Father, forgive them, the Roman soldiers were divvying up his clothes. And, and then it appears that they got the idea, Hey, hey let's just gamble and winner take all and see who's going to take all of the clothes. Verse 35, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Now, to me, this is really fascinating. Did you catch the the, the phrase, the people stood watching? Now, what were they watching? Crucifixion. Bloody, gory people. In this day, it's said that big crowds often came to witness the spectacle of a crucifixion, especially a crucifixion that was as close to Jerusalem as this one was. And and I'll just be honest with you, my my reaction is one of disgust. I mean, how could people be so warped and, and messed up to want to come out and be spectators of something so gruesome as a crucifixion? What's wrong with these people? This is wrong. But before you act too disgusted, let me bring this down to reality and say that we basically do the same thing. Um... There's something about tragedy. There's something about blood and gore and death that's embarrassingly fascinating. Our curiosity wants to know and see. And by the way, relax here. You're, you're too uptight, okay? Just kind of relax a little bit. But that's the reason that a good number of you have scanners in your home so you can find out all of the emergency gossip that goes on around here. You're curious, aren't you? And There's nothing wrong with that. That's our human nature, that's the way we are. And, and that's also when the, when, the, when the fire horn sounds. Craig, you know this, man. We have a steady line uh, uh, of, of cars following the fire trucks out to the fire. It's almost like rush hour traffic at the Triangle in Kansas City here in Cedar County. And uh, I, I won't ask you to raise your hand if you've done that because your sheepish grin has already given you away. We know you do that. That's why when there's been an accident with fatalities in our community, people head out to the scene, not to help, not to lend support, but they want to get a glimpse of the bodies that may have been mangled. That's why when someone in our community takes their life, and the funeral directors have talked to me about this, it is just so unreal that that week in the funeral home, there is a steady line of traffic coming in to view the body. They're, they're curious. They want to see. You know, that's why movies that are so violent seem to be the biggest draw. So I'm not being critical here. I'm merely saying that even though watching a crucifixion seems so disgusting to us, yet I honestly believe that many of us would probably have done the same thing. And, And we would have gathered to watch these people be crucified. But it wasn't just the common blue-collar person that was intrigued by a crucifixion. The verse that we read says that the rulers were also there, that the very people that that crucified Jesus, the the very people that had arrested Jesus, the very people that had been so threatened by his popularity and by his miracles, they were there. And even though he would be dead within a few hours, they were not about to let up. And, And so in the midst of watching him die, they were mocking him and saying, he saved others. Let! Him, save Himself if He's the Messiah. But then Scripture says there was another group present. Verse 36, the soldiers also came up and mocked Him. Now, now this, is, this was fascinating as I was just kind of meditating and, and studying this, this phrase here. When you see crucifixions in, in movies and, and uh, crucifixions even in our own drama, normally their feet, they're like uh, 24, 36 inches off of the ground. And so those that are walking by, they look up. But typically, that's not the way it was. And again, the Romans crucified people in different ways. So it's not like you can say they always did it this way. But But many, many times, the Romans would crucify people with their feet six to seven inches off of the ground. Just barely off the ground. And a, a, a couple of things there. One, it was close enough to where the victim would think, you know, if I just kind of get my toes down there because they were needing some air in their lungs. And so they were thinking, I'm so close, so close. And they couldn't quite touch the ground. So it made the suffering more intense. But but also the Romans had designed this to be the, the ultimate act in humiliation. And, and so when they were crucified six or seven inches from the ground, then they could walk up to them and, and be eyeball to eyeball and, and face to face and scream at them and then it w- they would even at times spit in their face because they were pretty much eye level. That They wanted this to be so humiliating. And so the Bible says that the Roman soldiers walked right up to Jesus and hurled their insults at him. Continuing on in verse thirty-six, says they offered him wine vinegar. What's wine vinegar? Well, wine vinegar was uh, basically the cheap wine that soldiers drank. Verse thirty-seven, and said, "If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself." Yeah, no, note that he was referred to as king of the Jews. And remember, when Pilate ha- had uh, when Pilate decided that Jesus would be executed, he ordered a sign uh, that, that said, uh, "King of the Jews." And and, and the, uh, the, the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders said, no, 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 it needs to read, he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, no, it's going to say king of the Jews. And, and so the Roman soldiers began to play off of that sign and they began to mock him as king of the Jews. Well, then finally, if that weren't enough, if having the common people and the rulers and the soldiers mock Jesus, if that weren't enough, then, then Matthew, who also documented, we're reading Luke's account, but, it, but Matthew documents this, and, and he says that the two criminals on either side of Jesus began to redirect their anger away from the Romans and away from the people, and they began to insult Jesus as well. And one of them said, hey, aren't you the Christ? Aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you supposed to be able to do something about this? I mean, if if you were the Messiah, this would not be happening to you. And if you were the Messiah, if you were a just and a righteous God, you would not let this happen to us either. He was implying, hey, no way are you the Christ. You can't even save yourself, much less us. Well, suddenly in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the insults, the other criminal, the criminal, the one we're focus, focusing on today, he stops insulting Jesus. And he begins to sense something different about this rabbi and, and possibly he was thinking about the words that, that he had just heard him say, Father, forgive. And it's as if the light gradually comes on and, and he says to the other criminal, we've got this all wrong. This man is a righteous man. This man very obviously was sent by God. And he said in verse 40, don't you fear God? He said, since you're under the same sentence, we're punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. He he was saying, wait, wait, wait. Don't you get it? Here's a man that has, has suffered just like we're suffering, but he's suffering unjustly and and listen to this, because this ties in with some of our opening statements. But despite suffering unjustly, he's not mad at God because of the way that life and people have treated him. And he comes over this man, he, it's like, oh my word, this is the Messiah. Why didn't I see this before? But But the sign they put on him is right. He is our king. Well, at this moment, during the pain, during the agony, despite the commotion and the noise, the criminal turns his head and he makes a request of Jesus. It's this dying man's last request. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And how did Jesus respond to this man that had been violent and wicked and had wasted his life as a criminal? Jesus answered him in verse 43, I tell you the truth today, because he was going to be dead in a few hours, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, this is so awesome. Jesus was saying, in spite of what all you've done, today, today, you'll be with me in paradise. And what hit me this week was that this was not because he was rededicating his life and promising to change his life from now on. No, no. On the cross, there is no from now on. There's no, well, you know, I promise, promise from now on, you know, for the rest of my years, I'll change my life and I'll never do this and I'll always do this. And no, 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 no. On the cross, there is no from now on. All there is from a cross is a desperate plea for grace and mercy. And what did did Jesus do? Jesus extended that grace. He extended that mercy to him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. And in this moment, this is so, so rich. Here at the very end of Jesus' life, in his last conversation before he died, did you notice? Jesus is having a conversation not with a righteous man, not with church people Not with his circle of friends. But he's having a conversation with one of the most unrighteous, ungodly, violent men in the city of Jerusalem. And up until his very last breath, he is trying to reach people with his grace and mercy and forgiveness. Wow. That, that so convicted me this week. You know, we like to spend time with our friends, and there's good. I mean, Jesus had his 12. He had his three. And then he had his best friend, which we take was, you know, John, the beloved. We, we need our friends. But Christ's life was all about seeking to save that which was lost. And so until his very last breath, there he is with this criminal extending his grace and mercy and forgiveness. Luke gives us a couple more details in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour for the sun stopped shining. So these three men had been dragged out early in the morning and taken to be crucified. Around noon the sun stopped shining and you know, I, I, I don't believe in astrology. I believe in astronomy. And this is kind of an aside here. It's not in my notes, but it seems like God has treated us this morning. If you were up early enough, then, then you saw the moon. Anybody see the moon? Just beautiful. Um, it's like he rolled back the clouds just a little bit. And, and I was telling the, the, the crowd last night, but this, this is what's called a blue moon. And, you know, you've heard the saying, well, once in a blue moon. Well, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that the mer- moon turns blue, but it just means that when there is a full moon, a second full moon in one month, they call that the blue moon. And supposedly it takes place, uh, you know, every 2.7 years. Uh, but but what's so strange about this year, we've already had two this year, and they're saying that there will not be another time like this, two uh, blue moons uh, in a year until 2037 i think 19 years away and and so this morning as i was i was coming to church early it was as if the the moon is so big and so full and you know god god has just created such an amazing amazing world and and uh, here you know, around noon, the, the, the sun that was shining so brightly, it, it stopped shining. And there was a thick darkness. It settled over the whole land. And, and, and the Bible says that for three hours, there was this thick darkness. So there they are on the cross, suffering with excruciating pain, pitch black. And, and by the way, I, I, I want to point out something here. I just use the word Excruciating. You know, we we use the word excruciating to describe terrible, terrible pain. What's interesting is that word excruciating comes from the words ex-crucifix. Literally means out of the cross. You know, we say, oh, I've been in excruciating pain. And that's out of the cross, excruciating, ex-crucifix. And there they are in complete darkness, excruciating pain. And Luke says, in complete darkness. And this blessed my soul this week. But, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. if you grew up in church, you perhaps understand the significance of of the curtain. This was the curtain that hung between the Holy of Holies and the place, which was the place where God dwelt. And and it was a thick curtain that separated the rest of the world from the presence of God. And and, and so when Jesus died, and that curtain wasn't just a thin curtain, but but they say it was a thick curtain. And and what made this so miraculous was that the, the tear was not from the bottom up. The tear was from the top down, which meant that God did this, signifying that God was welcoming everyone to the presence of Jesus. Everyone. We can all come to Jesus. And good people, bad people, ugly people, rich people, poor people, big people, little people, tall people. And even you vertically challenged people. All of us. And in that moment, everything that separated men and women from God was being taken care of on the cross through the death of Jesus. And then Jesus makes His last statement. Verse 46, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, there it is again, Father. Father, who could have stopped this? Father, who could have kept this from happening? Father, who could have spared Him? But Father, who he decided to trust anyway, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. Here's what you'll discover about the life of Jesus. Jesus took life right in the face. He experienced the way we experience life. And he never played the God card. He never got to the restaurant and said, I'm Jesus, put me to the front of the line, give me the best table, I want filet mignon. He never asked for preferential treatment. Jesus knew what it meant to be lonely. Have you ever been lonely? Jesus knew what it meant to be lonely. Jesus knew what it meant to be abandoned by friends in his darkest hour. He knew what it felt like when he prayed. He prayed and God said, no, I will not take This cup of crucifixion from you. Jesus knew what it felt like to not be able to own his own home. He knew what it felt like to be misunderstood. He knew what it felt like to even have his own family be skeptical of him. He took life right in the face. But he still trusted God, his father. So here's the question, and we circle around to where we started back 30 minutes ago. Have you perhaps confused life with God? Have you formed your opinion of God based on what has happened to you or based on on your prayers that weren't answered or based on loved ones that went through tragedies that you thought God should never allow? Have you formed your opinion of God based on disappointments with life? Jesus did not confuse life with God. He experienced life as we have hurts, disappointment, sorrow, unanswered prayers. But Jesus did not take his disappointment with life and turn it into disappointment with God. Jesus still trusted his Father. And so perhaps Jesus' message from the cross for you today is simply this. Are you listening? Yeah, life happens. But instead of clenching your fists in anger, instead of doubting God's love and goodness, do as Jesus did on the cross when he suffered unfairly. And that is to open your hands and open your heart and surrender to God's will. Because even when life is not good, God is still good. And there may be some of you here this morning, you've allowed your disappointment with life to keep you from a rela- relationship with God. And on this Easter, could I urge you to trust God because He's a good God. And, and this, this kind of is the climax because Jesus trusted God in death. On the third day, there was a resurrection. What's exciting? That's what happens to us. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but we trust Jesus, what happens? He gives us life. And so I know we're in the part of the country, the Bible Belt, where most everybody's been baptized, most everybody was raised in church, and most everybody prays and all that kind of stuff. But maybe there are some people here today that you have not fully surrendered your life to Jesus. So today, would you just kind of separate the disappointment with life and know that God is still good? And if someone here this morning has not trusted Jesus with your life and your heart, your soul, as we pray, would you just open your heart to Him? Would you just allow him to come and live in your heart? Would you bow your heads, please? Nobody looking. Would would you just be brutally honest today? Is there somebody here that would say, Joe, I'm not sure I've actually really trusted him with everything. Would you just pray for me that I would come to that point? Nobody looking around. Just someone, thank you, I see your hand. Thank you, I see your hand. Anybody else? Someone else, just lift your hand and pray for me. Thank you, I see your hand. Thank you. Anyone else? I'm I'm not sure I'm there, Joe, but I want to be. I want your prayers. (laughs) Would you open your heart to Jesus? Would you just look here this way just a minute before we pray? Everybody looking up here. As I pray. You know, I don't know what your church tradition is. Some churches you come forward and we do that here, but we don't believe there's anything magical about this altar unless it's just a pride issue and God wants to break your pride. But I believe that if you will open your heart to him today, he will come in. Would you just invite him to come into your heart? Maybe you were strayed away from him. Maybe you let your disappointment with life cause you to be disappointed with God and so you've distanced yourself. Would you just come back to Him? Let's pray together. Oh God, thank You for sending Your Son Jesus as an amazing example of what to do when life happens. Lord, I know, I know what our society says. I know there's the skepticism. You know, if God were a God that really loved and cared, then why would He have allowed this to happen to my loved one? Lord, I understand all of that. But Father, I pray that You would help us to have a glimpse of this life, that this life is 60, 70, 80, 90 years maybe. and But Lord, then we go into the other life, and that's forever. Lord, I pray that today you would help us to just open our hearts to you. And Lord, we want to surrender our will. And just as this criminal, Lord, it wasn't, you know, from now on, because he was going to be dead in just a few hours. and But Lord, you're, you extended your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness to him as he was dying on the cross. And Father, I just pray that today for those people that raise their hands and maybe others that didn't, but in their hearts right now, they know that something's not right, that there's sin or there's something or self or whatever. And, and Father, I just pray that this very moment that they would accept you and Lord, that they would invite you to come in and Lord, that they would surrender their will to you. Lord, we know what happens at Easter. We get fired up around Easter time and, and then uh, we go out and we, we kind of forget about it until Christmas. And, but Lord, I pray that this would be 24-7. Father, I pray that there would be such a strong commitment to you that would keep us steady 24 hours a day. Lord, I pray for these people. Lord, I thank you that they've taken time from their schedule, from their families to come here today. And I pray that as they leave, that, that they would just continue to be in the presence of God, that you would continue to speak to them. Lord, thank you for meeting us here. We're honored that you would come down. Lord, we love you and we ask these favors in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Let me just say something before we leave. And if, if you would like to pray, if you would like to talk, if you want to seek out one of the staff members or somebody that you have confidence in and we'll be glad to pray in here or go to the privacy of one of our offices or a Sunday school class and just make sure that you have surrendered to God before you leave here. Thank you so much. Happy Easter. You're dismissed.